Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night, this is Extra Time on SENZ. One minute after seven, welcome into SENZ. Mark Watson with you. Telephone number is 0800 150 Got to say, just listening to Joel and Fletch there out of Australia, um, firstly, really nice rapport between the two of them. But, um, yeah, slightly, not probably quite what I was expecting uh, with some of the questions they did pose around the situation in the ashes. Because there's a lot of hypocrisy with the Australians, but I thought that Joel and Fletch were quite balanced in the way they did approach it, and I will digress on that a little bit more shortly. Uh, I want to take try and take some talk back on the situation regarding the spirit of the game. The dismissal of Johnny Bairstow, whether or not Australia should have stumped him. Technically, they're 100% correct within the rules of the game, but then, mind you, so was the underarm incident back in 1981. It was technically legal. There are a lot of things that are legally correct, but morally corrupt. And I think if you could... A metaphor for legally correct, morally corrupt, I think, is Australian cricket. I can't stand them. I think they are the biggest bunch of hypocrites in the world. They are your classic bullies. Very good at dishing it out, terrible at taking it. Let's be honest, Ian Smith was right when he said there's no such thing anymore as the spirit of the game. There was, and then the chapels came along in the 1970s and it disappeared pretty quickly. And Australian cricket from one generation to the next have just adopted what I would consider to be just absolutely an utter appalling behaviour. Go back to the underarm incident, go back to the Mike Whitney 1986-87 Boxing Day test with Hadley and Danny Morrison having them LBW on about 10 occasions only for their 12th man, the umpire, not to give either of them out. You know, you go back to 2011 and we win a test in Tasmania and they give the man of the match to Shane Warne. I, not a cricket-related matter, but even the Rugby League World Cup back in 2008, we won that. They gave Darren Lockyer the man of the match. You go back to the World 
Test Cricket Championship played against India this year and there was a catch that Cameron Green took that was definitely not a catch. Not one former Australian player criticised that decision. The Australians had no issue with it. Yet, clearly not catch. We've had a couple of incidents in this test match. Smith taking what looked like a remarkable catch, but if you watch it, it wasn't a catch. Australian said nothing. Mitchell Stark takes a catch that looked like a catch, but within the rules of the game was deemed not to be a catch. The Australians jumped up and down and cried like little girls and little babies. I'm a little bubba wubba, I'm an Australian cricketer. But hey, given out within the rules of the game. Following the next day, though, more than happy for the rules of the game to be adhered to. And all the former Australian cricketers who absolutely went off their nut the day before and how the start catch couldn't be given out. More than happy, though, with the Johnny Bairstow decision. Stuart Broad says to Kerry, this is what you'll be remembered for. And all the Australian papers are going, Stuart, I didn't walk broad, going back to the last Ashes series where he got an edge, was caught at second slip and didn't walk. When was the last time an Australian walked in a game of cricket? Seriously, when did an Australian last walk in a game of cricket? Oh, Adam Gilchrist said, I walked, I always walked if I got the edge. The same Adam Gilchrist who stood behind the stumps, more than happy to appeal for a catch that wasn't a catch, a baller to come off the thigh pad on the hope that the umpire might give them out. More than happy to appeal for LBWs that clearly weren't even remotely in line on the hope the umpire might get it wrong. Complete and utter hypocrisy. Australia are the best cricketing nation in the world, but they are an absolute disgrace when it comes to sportsmanship and they are the last thing you want your kids to grow up and want to be. You got Sandpapergate. Trying to make out it was the first time they'd done it. Rubbish. It was just simply the first time they'd got caught. You had Michael Clark years ago. Clearly heard through the umpire. Clearly heard through the um, stump mics. We'll break your effing arm. But nobody can sledge the little baby Australian and Zuzman Kawaja gets a send-off. How dare they? It's not exactly within the spirit of the game. I heard that terminology being used by former Australian cricketers that that send-off for Usman Kawaja was not within the spirit of the game. The Australians, when it comes to cricket, and I only mean cricket because I've got a lot of time for so many other Australian sports, I genuinely do, are just a pack of mongrels. They are the lowest of the low. 0800 150811.
So all the Aussies think it was brilliant. Bairstow's given out. And that it was okay because it was within the rules. But those same Aussies 24 hours earlier couldn't stand the fact that Starks catch, even though the umpires got it correctly right because it was within the rules. That somehow that catch should have stood. Every time Australia were involved in a serious game of cricket, their bad sportsmanship comes to the fore. They're never gracious. Now, I know Brendan McCullum's come out and said, look, I'm not sure we'll be having a beer with them after the test. It's going to take some time. And a lot of people have jumped on Brendan McCullum. Yes, but Brendan McCullum did it against Sri Lanka. Yes, but Brendan McCullum came out sometime later and said, look, I was young, I was dumb, and I was wrong. And it wasn't within the spirit of the game, and I shouldn't have done it. Doesn't make it right at the time. But you know... No Australian cricketer is ever going to come out and apologise for situations like this. 0800 But does it really, really surprise you? See, in most countries, if somebody kills cops and robs banks, they're the lowest of the low. If somebody's a brutal gangster who kills people, they are the lowest of the low. But no, not in Australia. They need Kelly, their chopper read, and their national damn heroes. Oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one is the number. Now, here I am, basically sledging the Australians out there. It'll be interesting to see the reaction. Because that's what I'm doing. I'm sledging you Australians. Can you suck it up? Can you take it on the chin? Or you're just typical bullies. Very good at dishing it out, but terrible at taking it. You wrote the damn book when it comes to sledging. You've never walked in your life, but you point the finger at everybody else. Absolutely laughable. What I will say though, I love it because it's got me engaged and I wish New Zealand rugby and other sports would have this level of controversy because I can guarantee the viewing numbers for the next test will be through the damn roof because we all love a train wreck, don't we? So as much as the Australians disgust me and annoy me, there's a part of me as a sports fan that loves the narrative. A narrative that no longer exists in rugby in this country because rugby is only about the 80 minutes in the middle of the park. 0800 150811 is the number. Now, I've made a deliberate point, and I love doing this. I love doing this. Boy, it winds them all up. I... Go on the Facebook pages, like Australian Cricket Fans page, and they're all applauding the decision of Kerry. And so I write write comments highlighting all the hypocrisy in the Australian cricket team, and then I just sit back and I just hope important people are wasting their time because something I've posted. I don't really care what the reaction is. I'm not going to reply to the reaction. I just love 
to throw it on there so that important people waste their time replying to me. I do it quite regularly. I love doing it to English rugby fans too who, you know, still think they're the greatest rugby nation on earth. You can text the program to here on double eight double three. Or you can jump on the phone 0800 Carla's text and Mark, you're 100% correct. I play pub cricket over there and it was insane what they would say to you. Hi Mark, I was watching the running race in Christchurch in the weekend where they run 6.7 kilometres every hour till the last man standing. Sam Harvey, what a machine. Backing up 10 days after running 100 laps, around 680 kilometres, winning again. But this time only having to run 43 laps. Yeah, we're going to talk some athletics too after 8 o'clock with Hayden Sherman. There's been a lot of really cool things happening in athletics, um, particularly around Zoe Hobbs. Uh, also too, should just mention Daniel Hiller for winning uh, the British Masters Golf Championship. Uh, what a legend, 24 years of age, first major win, 400,000 odd pounds. Remarkable story. And then, of course, Shane Van Gisberg, and we are going to focus on Shane a little bit later. I think it's one of the great moments uh, in the history of motorsport in this country, and I think in time might just be one of those great underrated moments in the history of New Zealand sport. You win in NASCAR on debut. There are four major sports in America, NBA, NFL, baseball, NASCAR, and then ice hockey. But NASCAR is one of the big four. Shane Van Gisbergen on debut wins. Boy from Auckland, remarkable story. Anyway, let's go continue to put the boot into the Aussies. Let's see how Aussie friends over there react and how Australians living in the country react. Let's see if they've got some thick skin. Let's see if they can handle the sledging. Hopefully the Australian public are a little bit more resilient than the Australian cricket team. OK, we're sledging the Aussies. We're sledging the great hypocrites of world sport. The bully boys, the crybabies, however you want to call them. Cameron Green catch, which wasn't a catch in the World Test Series. Happy for that to stand. It's all OK. Even though the Indians felt hard done by. Coming out and telling us the rules are the rules. And the Bearstow deserved to go out and Kerry was a winner's rights to stump him. There's no such thing as the spirit of the game. No, there's not. I went with the Chapels and the Australian cricket team in the 1970s. But what I just found was the reaction of, and I'm not sure whether it was Ricky Ponting, But when Usman Kawaja was sledged in that first test by Ollie Robinson, a number of the former Australian captains or players came out and said, I don't think it was within the spirit of the game. But see, more than happy that Alex Carey's Stumping of Bearstow, and Bearstow clearly believed it was the over was over and was just simply going down the wicket to have a chat. Somehow that was okay. That was not against the spirit of the game. The Australians jumping up and down and telling us it's within the rules, yet 24 hours earlier, 24 hours earlier didn't want to know about the rules. 
Mitchell Stark, catch was a catch. Forget the rules, it was a catch. Always remember the sad death of Philip Hughes. Michael Clark, his eulogy. And he talked about Philip Hughes' legacy and the importance of the spirit of the game. Maybe they need to go back and have a wee listen to that eulogy again. Because in hindsight it was just lip service, in my opinion. Just a piece of Hollywood. Great speech, but incredibly insincere, if I can say that, just my opinion. Am I winding you Australians up yet? Am I getting underneath your skin? Sandpaper gate, first time you did it, first time you got caught. It's basically fraud, it's basically match fixing, isn't it? You're manipulating the ball, you're manipulating the game. Ruining cricketers' careers. Unfairly dismissed. At the time, I think you laughed it off, didn't you? Australian cricket team, and it's a shame because there's so much I love about Australia. Absolutely classless, though, aren't they? Just classless. You know, going about Stuart Broad not walking. When was the last time any Australian walked in any cricket game? I really do hope England can win the next test. I really do. 0800 Steve's got a slightly different um, point. And, and let me read it. Mark, I'm sick of all the spazball crap. Glad Aussie stuck it up the palms. Trader McCullum. Cheers, Steve. P.S. That catch was out. Stark clearly caught that. Oh, look, it was out. But the rules of the game said it's not out. Bearstow believed that was the over was over and was going up to have a chat. But within the rules of the game, he was given out. Baseball is not something Brennan McCullum wanted. Brennan McCullum going and coaching overseas is not becoming a trader. It's a job opportunity post his career, no different than a lot of rugby coaches do. No different than a lot of other people do in this country that go and work overseas. He's trying to change the game. He's trying to actually get bums back on seats. Cricket's in a world of trouble. T20 cricket is meaningless. The novelty's worn off. There's too much of it. There's no sense of nationalism if you win. One player can win it. One player can take it away from you. One day cricket sort of stuck in no man's land. It's only good once every four years for a Cricket World Cup. And so what have we got left? Well, we've got to protect the purity of the game. So what do you do? Well, you bring the best aspects of one day cricket and T20 cricket to test cricket and suddenly you've got a winning product and that's what he's trying to do. I applaud them for it. But they do at times have to be able to learn to curb that uninhibited play with some common sense. They still need a level of common sense. Hey Mark, it was Davy Dum Dum, Davy Warner, 123 not out and the losing okay, he was man of the match, was it? Davy Warner. Um, also was the first day night test in same series where Hotspot had Lyon edging it and third umpire said it could have been a fly. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, look, I mean, this is what I don't like. This is what I don't like. Anyway, let's, oh, I don't want to do this, but 
let's hear from what was it Mitchell Stark that wasn't he the one that jumps up and down about what was it what was his oh he didn't want Australian cricket be sponsored by a mining company because of global warming more than happy though to go across and play in the IPL in a country that has 6% of the world's total emissions more than happy to fly regularly on aeroplanes more than happy to own some big gas guzzler. Another virtue signalling sports person with zero sincerity about them. Complete and utter hypocrites. I'm not going to listen to this interview. The guy disgusts me, but we're going to play it anyway. Here is the Australian captain, who, by the way, you know, can go alongside the War Brothers, Steve Waugh can go alongside of Michael Clark, the Chapels, and all the other mongrel captains that have captained this terrible cricketing country. Oh, it was, you know, it was high pressure. It felt like an Ashes series. The crowd were certainly um, made themselves known um, in the long room and also out in the crowds. But, uh, you know, really satisfying in the end. Um, some, some real problems to work through there for us bowlers. And, you know, as a captain, I thought Stokes was fantastic. Um, he played amazing, so... Um, yeah, I'd say the cricket was the tougher part. And uh, what did you think of um, the treatment that you got in the long room? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'd say the MCC came and apologised for their behaviour of some of the members. Um, yeah, they, I think some of them might lose their membership over the way they behaved. Um, that's it. Should players still have to walk through the long room? Should what, sorry? Should players still have to walk through the long room? I mean, other than that kind of one time, they were fantastic all week. Um, you know, the members here are normally fantastic, really welcoming. Um, you know, you, it's something special about playing at Lords is you feel like you're at a really special place, surrounded by people who just share a love of the game. So, um, I don't know. I quite like the tradition. Yeah. Pat, uh, <clears throat> uh, just on the Ben Stokes innings, it felt for a while that it was an encore of Headingley. What do you think you guys did differently uh, today as to, f- to four years ago? Like, was it slowing the pace down of the game itself and just your tactics with the ball? Uh, I think the biggest help was that we you know, had an extra few runs on the board. <laughs> um, you know, he was in pretty formidable form out there. Um, so having a bit, bit of extra runs to play with certainly helped. Um, yeah, I think we learned a few lessons from Headingley, you know, slowing the game up a bit, um, trying to hit him, get him to hit in areas that um, we want him to rather than kind of 360. Um, and, you know, with a wicket like that, the ball was old, soft. You, you don't have too many options, really. So um, just try to kind of hang in there, hang in there, not let there be too many big, big overs. And, um, yeah, fortunately, you know, we hit one up. But, yeah, it was a fantastic innings. Uh, it seems like uh, the opposite number, Stokes, has suggested that he would have considered the spirit of cricket and withdrawn that appeal. So did you consider the spirit of cricket? Can you defend not withdrawing that appeal? OK. Um, I thought it was fair. You know, it's... Um, you know, you see Johnny do it all the time. He did it day one to Davey Warner. He did it in 2019 to Steve. It's a really common thing for keepers to do if they see a batter keep leaving their crease so um, you know Kez 
full credit to him, saw the opportunity. I think Johnny did it a few balls beforehand, rolled at the stumps. Johnny left his crease, you leave the rest to the umpires. Uh, the yeah, hi Pat. Um, just wanted to ask about the sort of committee meeting there was just after um, Stokes hit start for a couple of sixes just before drinks. Could you tell us sort of what was said, how your plans changed after that and sort of what you felt you needed to do differently? Yeah, I think before that um, we felt like, you know, whatever it was, 100 plus runs was a long way away with bounces. Um, I think after that over, the wind was howling towards whatever that stand is. Um, so it just felt like we needed to go away from that stand, really. Get him hit into the offside away from that. It's just he's too good a player and it's too short a boundary. Um, so that was really the crux of it and just trying to hang in there. Um, ideally try to have broad on strike as much as we could. Um, but again, pretty tough to kind of protect the boundaries and also do that. Pat, I just first want to check, um, where, at what point did you get the very nice shiner and um, after Edge Baston there sort of seemed to be this almost warm glow of everyone played great and it wasn't it a wonderful game it felt with the, all the with Mitch's uh, catch that wasn't a catch with the with the Bearstow thing today the way the crowd it feels like a real torch has been lit now how do you see this series going forward has it gone up a notch and is it going to affect the way that you play and you're received. Uh, I got the shiner on maybe day two fielding. I just dived for a ball and didn't use my hands. Um, so I got to fix up that. Uh, yeah, it seems like every Ashes has some drama to it. Even one-sided Ashes in the past seem to, things get stoked up halfway through a series. So um, I think if anything, this feels like it's kind of, you've got two old rivals who are playing against each other and um, is it going to change anything? I, I don't think so. I don't think it'll change anything for us. Um, yeah, I think you know we're still amicable. Um, so we'll see how it's played out. Uh, you know, I feel the good thing about I guess at this stage, rather than 2019 when we lost Headingley, it became one all. You know, being up two nils, something we should be really proud of as a group. Um, but yeah, I don't feel like this series needed any more attention because there's a lot going on. Um, but maybe there is some more. So there you go. Um, Stark. Pat Cummins, my apologies. Pat Cummins, half asleep. Uh, yeah, his justification on it. Uh, let's go to the phone. Hi, Michael. Okay, Mark. I've just got in the car. I'm just listening to the last five minutes of uh, you getting stuck in the Aussies, mate. Just a good question for you. Why, why do you so take it so... You sound like you take it so personally. No, I just decided. I just decided today to come onto the radio, and just decide to sledge because that seems to be very much the flavour of what's been going on in this test series. So I thought, well, why not? Why not? Um, yeah, why not have a little bit of a parody on the show? And I just find the Australians, when it comes to cricket and cricket alone, uh, the great hypocrites of world sport. I just think. They're the great bullies. And look, am I scarred? Absolutely am I scarred. The underarm incident in the 80s, a whole lot of incidents surrounding Australian sport absolutely have scarred me over the years. And uh, that, that, was not within, that was not within the spirit of the game. And the thing that I struggle with the most is they want to bring out the rule book, yet 24 hours earlier, the rule book, rightly or wrongly, said the start catch wasn't a catch, but they didn't want to know the rule book then. You know what I mean? It's just full of hypocrisy. I just can't stand them, mate. Well, sorry, well, you're talking to one. 
So. Well, I know I am. I know I am. Look, there's a lot of things about Australian sport I do love, mate, genuinely. I've got a yeah. you know, great affinity yeah. for your Australian track and field team, your swimming, yeah. your league, your rugby. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know you're in the athletics and all that, but it's just, I just feel as though, and like you just said, I, I just got on the radio and I thought, oh, I'll have a, a go at them, but it's not the first time. You're always having a go at them, mate. It's like yeah. it's, you know, it's like a broken down record. I know, you, you know, like some people will listen to you, some people won't, and yeah, no, it's just, I, I think it's yeah. just I think it's just your Australian cricket team, the sandpaper gate, the whole thing, mate. You know, trying to make out it was the first time they'd done it. No, it wasn't. It was just the yeah, first I'm time not, they got I'm caught. Not, and and it, there just seems to be a theme that always runs through with the Australian cricket team, mate. And it's just after a while, you know, it's just it, 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 it's just not a great reflection on what I think is a great country. Yeah, oh, look, I know that. I, know, I, I hear, I hear. Yeah, but I, I just uh, it's, I suppose it's it's... It's our only. It's our All Blacks, right? You know, even though I'm not taking away away sometimes, we we play on the edge, right? We just that's the way we play. And you know, I suppose it's it's not. It's just you know, success brings a lot of things, and sometimes it brings the good, and sometimes it brings the bad. And um, you know, it's just the way it's viewed. But if you, you know, like, you've got your opinion. I've got mine, and probably yeah. You know, a few thousand people here in New Zealand, but you, you know, some of them are for and some of them are against. Some of them look at Australia and go, yep. "Why can't yep. New Zealand play like Australia?" You know, oh, and, um, oh, oh no! Look, look, look! What I will say is, man, at the end of the day, you're the best cricketing nation in the world, and you've got a ruthless streak about you. Um, and yeah. there's a lot to admire, but I just think there are certain behaviour just lets it down at time, and I struggle with that. Yeah. But what I will yeah. say, what I will say, I wish that rugby in this country at times had the edge that Australian cricket's got, because of what it would do, it would generate some interest, it would create some controversy, and people would actually start oh, talking about the damn game and actually start watching it. Now, for, and I said this in my yep. I said this in my opening bit, Michael, and you might have missed it. Oh, as much as the bit, yep. as much as the Australian cricket team inferior, I mean, I've made. You know, I've decided just to get into character and decided to dedicate the first out of sledging. Oh. And I've decided, so, so it's a little yeah. bit of a parody, to be honest. It might not come across yeah. that way, but there's a little bit of a smile on mm. my face when I'm doing it. But what I do like, I love the fact that how many people are now going to watch the third test? It's going to have the biggest viewing oh, audience probably in the history yep. of test cricket. Me as a New Zealander yep. is going to be watching it. We're going to be looking for the yep. niggle. We're going to be looking for it. And that's what sport needs. Mm. It needs multiple narratives. Yep. I keep saying this. Mm. We as mankind are flawed. But sport these days mm. wants to try and make out that we're all of the highest moral standing and that we can't tolerate any sort of discerning behaviour. But it is so wrong. Look at how many people watch Married at First Sight. Why are man's defeats on the front pages of the newspapers and man's victories on the back? Because we all yep. love a little bit yep. of bloodshed. We all love a train wreck. So there's a part of me yep. too that just wants what this Australia-England series has got across rugby. Because at the end of the day, rugby mm. has reduced itself to the 80 minutes in the little park and it's just not enough boring. to get a level of engagement. It's boring. It's, it's just one-dimensional. Mm. And, and your own pundits here and commentators have got... They just support. It's like there's, I don't know. They they can't, they can't dissect the game and say, look, the players play bad here or something. There's, there's nothing. It's just one-sided. Unless the pundits in the UK and Australia, if, if Australia are going bad, well, they'll give it to them. Yeah, yeah they, they'll stand up. Yeah, no, but that's people. but that's what I love. You, you you switch on here, right? And the best show on Sky TV is NRL three hundred and sixty because you've got four yep. Australians who are happy to celebrate yep. the good, 
absolutely yep. talk about the bad, absolutely prepared to challenge yep. the establishment, what's good with the game, what's wrong with the game. Here in New Zealand, we've got Sky Sport, who basically are a PR firm for New Zealand um, rugby, who won't yep. criticise the organisation at all, but then at the same time wonder why nobody's watching it, nobody's talking about it. Mm. And so there is a lot to admire. Now, in all seriousness, Michael, what part of Australia are you from? Uh, I, was in, I, was, uh, I was living in Melbourne before um, come, uh, I moved out of New Zealand, but I was back and forth. So I'm a New South Wales person. I'm not a Victorian. Um, so I live between Sydney and Melbourne. So I've, I've got, I'm pretty rounded when it comes to codes. I'm a, an ISL person too, and that's, that's another story. But um, yeah, I, um, it's, and this, that's what I'm saying. I, I, I'm trying to explain it in short to the Kiwi mates over here. It's like, our cricket is your All Blacks. It's the only game that gets all states on the yeah. one Sport. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Wallabies different. It's 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 different. And league and union. It's it's the only game. So we're passionate. You know, like we always say, when you're the captain of Australia, that's the next best job to be in the PM of Australia. So we take it pretty. You know, we're, you know, that's, like I said, you know, we're um, passionate and yeah, you know, we play the edge. But you know, to be honest, when the Sandgate and all and there are dickheads in that team, we don't. You know, one is not popular in Australia. You know, I might think that he, no. he is. He's not that popular. No. no well, I, I, I just... want, and, and that's what all players being like. Um, Wide either, but we, you know, we can, we want someone that's, yeah, yeah, but uh, you, you know, I feel sorry for Cameron Bancroft because he was that third member of that sandpaper gate and he seems, oh, yeah, he seems yeah. to have been made yeah. the scapegoat through all of it, and yet the higher profile players are sort of back in that side, yeah. Uh, look, yeah. what, what was I going to say that was, um, look, the AFL do it very well again, they've got multiple narratives the whole time, they've got a level of tribalism yeah. which we could only dream of here. Oh, I think yeah. the, you know, I yeah. even think the NRL, as much as the scandals in that game annoy me, and um, you know, in a funny way, um, all of these dickheads yeah. off the field who do dumb things, yeah. it still somehow yeah. adds yeah. to the entertainment package. It still somehow adds to the interest in the game, rightly or wrongly. And you know, yeah. there, there, as yeah. I said, there is so much to like, and I genuinely have a lot of time for Australia. I genuinely have a lot of time for Australian sport. I just struggle with your uh, cricket team. Always have for some yeah, reason. No, yeah. No, look, I appreciate you phoning me. I, I genuinely do. I genuinely... And, and you're clearly the most intelligent Australian I know, mate, because you're living over here. Oh, I'll put the phone onto my wife and she's a Kiwi. No. <laughs> <laughs> See, you've also got good taste in women. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, I appreciate, appreciate you. No, Michael, hey, lovely to have you on the program, buddy. And like I say, it's uh, really just the Australian. And, and yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a, I'm sort of, yeah, I'm sort of in character tonight a little bit. It's sort of the theme no, of the first right. day. No, there's, all right, there's many more of you in New Zealand. Yeah. All right, mate. All right, mate. Hey, thank you. There <laughs> you go. Lovely. Great call. Thank you, Michael. There you go. Boy, that's a sensible Australian, isn't it? But good, you know. Wound him up. We had a chat. We sorted it out. Have a few beers. Have a few beers, you know. Um, hey, Mark, Nick here, a New Zealander, didn't have a problem with the Besto incident. If anything, I feel that's what's happening with the POMS response to it was um, a challenge to the spirit of the game. The umpire called it out, and you may have Besto arguing on field. You have MCC members abusing the players, and you have Stokes crying in the post-match. This was nothing on the underarm incident. Besto attempted it on day one. Yeah, I didn't see day one, to be honest. I, I didn't I didn't hear about it either. Uh, look, all I'm saying is that I find it funny that the Australians and a lot of the former Australian captains, you know, have no problem with the incident saying, look, 
it's within the rules of the game. Yet the day before, the Mitch Stark catch, rightly or wrongly, was given not out because within the rules of the game, what occurred the moment the ball going into the hands contradicted what is deemed to be a catch. So if the Australians had have just accepted that the day before and said, hey, it's within the rules of the game, then I would would I wouldn't have such a problem with them the next day jumping up and down saying, well, it's okay, it was within the rules of the game. You can't have one and not the other. You can't pick and choose your arguments. The catch was not a catch because it's deemed not to be a catch within the rules of the game. Besto was out because it's within the rules of the game. Well, you know, I, 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 I didn't hear Glenn McGrath, who was seething the day before with the Mitchell Stark catch, I haven't heard his reaction to the Johnny Bairstow dismissal. 20 minutes away from 8, 0800 150811. Got to say, I did enjoy that call from Michael. Um, stay listening, Michael. Uh, please, jump on the phone. Feel free to challenge me at times. No problem with it at all. Uh, 15 minutes away from 8. Let's hear from England captain, man who was born here in New Zealand, father captain the Kiwis, of course, Gerard Stokes, but let's hear from Ben Stokes. Uh, look, I think the whole... I mean, taking the whole situation in consideration, I think it, the first thing that needs to be said, it is out. Um, the things that I obviously had to consider when I was out there was the fact that it was the last ball of the over. Um, I very shortly questioned the umpires whether they had called over. Um, you know, both umpires were making the gesture towards walking to their opposite position of being umpires. Uh, does, does that make sense? Yeah, going from square leg to standing, standing to, to square leg. And... Um, you know, Johnny was in his crease and then left his crease to come out and have the conversation in between overs like every batsman does. Um, I think if if I was a fielding captain at the time, I would have put a bit more, well, a lot more pressure on the umpires to to ask them what their decision was around the over, um, and then would have had to have a a real think around the, the spirit of the game and would I want to potentially win a game with something like that happening and it would be no. Where's it left the relationship going forward in this series between yourselves and Australia? Um, oh, look, I, mean, I know a lot's going to be made of this um, and, you know, I think if we, if I was to sit here and go on and on and on about it, it will just take away the fact of what that game was. Um, it was an unfortunate situation for, for the game to have, but it was an incredible game. Um, take that away from it and we'd all be talking about how good the game was. And I don't think we should be sitting here talking too much about something like that. What did you make of the atmosphere at Lords? It's very rarely, if ever, like that. There was even, even spilled into the long room. What did you make of everything that was going on? <laughs> um, to be honest, when, when, when I'm out there, I, you, you hear the noise and everything like that, but you just try and, I personally just try and stay in my own little bubble and you know, my own bubble with the other batter who's out there with me. Uh, I could obviously see that things were ramping up and it was getting a bit vocal and it wasn't until I got out and then went in, you know, on the balcony to watch the, the remaining half an hour and I, I was just like, I've never heard laws like this. It's, it was even at the back end of the test match that reminded me of the World Cup final in 2019. Um, so, yeah, it was good to see Lords, uh, a ground that's not 
sort of has a reputation for the atmosphere and the noise, but you know, today was, was one of the days where, where Lord showed up. What did Stuart Broad say to Cummins and also Carey? <laughs> Brody, he was on one, wasn't he? He was really on one. Um, look, I think, you know, you've seen Stuart, he's played 160 games and it's not the first time he's, he's been expressive with his body language or um, niggle towards the opposition. And I think if you look at the situation of the game when he came out, he needed that. He wanted to get into the battle. He wanted to pick a battle. Um, I was about to say with someone, but he picked it with the whole Australian cricket team. So, um, yeah, look, that's, that's Brody. And look, what he did for the team in that situation with myself particularly was incredible. You know, the... Uh, the barrage of bounces he was copping, the, the blows he was taking, um, you know, but he stood firm um, and he took it and he played incredibly, incredibly well and was very, very brave. Finally 2-0 down. How do you come back from here? What do you cling to in terms of belief? Uh, we've won 3-0 against New Zealand. We've won 3-0 against Pakistan in Pakistan. Um, we've won three games in a row twice. What we're thinking about was winning the Series 3-2. There you go. Ben Stokes, um, boy, he's classy, isn't he? I mean, you know, um, yeah, I think he provided a slightly different insight to Pat Cummins. And I, yeah, uh, this moment um, probably took anything away from what actually was another great test match. Whether you like baseball or not, and England might be on the wrong side of the ledger, it's absolutely enthralling cricket. And we here in New Zealand, it's become our series as much as it has become Australia and England series because it is just so highly engaging. And as I said to Michael, I just wish that times we had controversy in rugby so that we had something to at least have us moving in the direction of watching something because it's been sanitised so much that, you know, the game is just in terrible decline. It's just so stagnant. It is just so boring. It is just so lifeless and soulless. Got to have personality. Got to have a train wreck. We love it. But you've also got to have quality sport combined with it I think rugby provides the quality sport but we've got nothing else where I think at the moment we're getting both from the cricket Had a busy day? Catch up on what you've missed in the world of sport It's Extra Time on SENZ Six minutes away from eight coming up after eight Hayden Schumann on the programme heavily involved with athletics there's been a lot of amazing things that have gone on in athletics in recent times Zoe Hobbs qualifying for the Paris Olympics Tom Walsh still continuing to compete internationally uh, still at the highest level in the sport Hamish Kerr winning his first ever Diamond League meet in the high jump overnight New Zealand time so we'll find out we've also had the Gold Coast Marathon half marathon underway we got the World Para Athletic Championships coming up. A number of New Zealanders competing in that as well. We will celebrate what a remarkable day for Shane Van Gisbergen. 75th year of NASCAR. First ever time they've taken NASCAR to the roads. Downtown Chicago. No driver has ever won on debut in the NASCAR since the 1960s. I think it was 1964. I will check on that. And Shane Van Gisbergen wins on debut, shows the Americans how to drive on a street circuit, uses his V8 supercar experience. It was a stunning, stunning drive, a great moment for New Zealand motorsport, a great moment for New Zealand sport.
We will also revisit the cricket gang coming up after nine o'clock. Garth Galloway, live from London, who was at the test at Lords, will get his thoughts on all the controversy, his thoughts on all the results. Okay, 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 okay. Let's move away from the controversy of the cricket. Let's talk a real sport, eh? Let's talk a real sport. I always remember one of my swim coaches saying to me, if you don't want to train, play cricket. Bit harsh, but probably an element of truth in it. One sport that is incredibly tough is the sport of track and field, truly global. You know why? Because what's the biggest sporting event in the world? It's the Olympic Games. And what do they build the Olympic Stadium for? They build it for track and field. The voice of athletics in this country is Hayden Sherman. He joins us on the programme. G'day, Hayden. G'day. How are you doing? Yeah, good Good to be talking about athletics. And, um, yeah, things are, things are heating up around around the world. And a lot of Kiwis been in action over the weekend. So, yeah, excited to digest um, what's been going on. Zoe Hobbs. Not good enough to make a Commonwealth Games team um, in Birmingham last year, which we won't get into, but was somewhat controversial. But here she is a year on, and she's qualified for the Paris Olympics. Uh, Boy, what a remarkable year it has been for her in terms of her taking that step from being at a national level to now an international class athlete. Yeah, it's it's been incredible. So yeah, it was back in uh, Tokyo when she she missed out on that Olympic team. I think that the last eighteen months, I've I've lost count on how many times she's broken that one hundred meter uh, New Zealand record. But she's now the the area uh, record holder, and she's just taken another point zero one seconds off off her own record with a with a wonderful performance in uh, in Switzerland at the weekend. So she competed in the Diamond League. Two days later, there's another meet uh, where she had a heat and then a final, and it was in that heat where she she posted that uh, new area record um, and also booked, yeah, like you say, booked her place uh, uh, subject to um, all the conditions that need to be ticked, but certainly got that that auto uh, mark for the Olympics next year, and that's really exciting. And, and every time she goes out onto the track, just puts down another marker to the the world of hundred meter sprinting that this girl's someone to watch. So she's definitely climbing up the ranks and, and proving she she belongs on the Diamond League circuit and the top eight women in the world. It's awesome. Yeah, I always used to say with swimming, you have three lanes and if the fastest person in the fast lane swims four minutes 30 um, and the next best is, say, four minutes 15, four minutes 10, everybody's going to push to 4.30. But if you get somebody that comes along and... Oh, sorry, yeah, if you get somebody that comes along that can swim quicker than 4.30, everybody then starts to push to that new time person doing 4.30 continues to improve. And I sense this this is the same thing in athletics, isn't it? The more Zoe Hobbs gets to compete against the best athletes on a regular basis, you would imagine that it's just going to be natural for her to continue to push the bar, continue to push the ceiling. I, I think so. And, and it's almost like talking amongst, you know, especially young women around, around New Zealand, it's almost like a sort of a Peter Snell, Murray Helberg moment where you've you need someone to break onto that international stage like they did in, in the early 60s and then it sets off this, this catalyst for others, others to follow in their steps. So I wouldn't be surprised you know, if there's a 10, 12-year-old girl right now who's watching what's happening with Zoe and is involved in a local athletics club and says, I want to do that. Um, and then we see that next generation like we did with uh, Lydia's boys in the early 60s and then we see the John Walker and the Dick Quacks 
um, and Rod Dixon come out in the 70s. So um, it's it definitely these things sort of go in generations and there's a lot of lot of young people with, with close eyes on what, what Zoe's doing. Um, but also a big shout out to uh, Tian Welton, who was also at that same meet in Switzerland and, and equaled his personal best of 10-1-4. So he's getting close to uh, Eddie uh, also in Kitia's um, national record uh, from last year of 10.08. So um, wouldn't be surprised if we see a potential New Zealand men's 100 metre record this European uh, season as well. So, so watch that space. Yeah, you mentioned an athlete being the catalyst. I mean, I think we saw Nick Willis bring a resurgence back to middle distance athletics here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam Tanner, case in point. There are others. We've seen Geordie Beamish do incredible things, and we'll talk about him shortly. Uh, but you see, we've seen what Eliza McCartney's done in terms of depth suddenly in pole vault, what Valerie Adams has done in terms of trying to establish depth in women's shot put. And it, yeah. only, t- it only takes one, doesn't it? it? It really does. And, you know, as one athlete, and they inspire inspire those watching but it's also the it's also the coaching stuff like so James Mortimer's uh, Zoe Hobbs coach and that intellectual property is, is being built here in New Zealand and then that's passed on to other athletes and um, you know as a coach here in New Zealand I get to go and learn from from someone like James Mortimer and he's telling other coaches hey here's here's how we got Zoe to where she is now and Here's how you can do that. So it's not just the, the athlete pulling them along. I think there's there's all those other aspects behind the scenes that uh, go into producing the the coaching knowledge and um, the infrastructure around. You know, how do we become a nation that can produce produce great uh, sprinters? And, and that's been the development of New Zealand athletics over the last probably twenty or thirty years. We've moved away from just middle distance focus um, in the later part of the, the 20th century and, and now truly across the board when you think Hamish Kerr uh, just uh, winning his first Diamond League in the in the men's high jump um, was it just this morning, it's all been a blur over the weekend actually uh, and uh, so we've got high jumpers we've got pole vaulters, we've got middle distance athletes, sprinters, throwers, the, the whole shebang, so it's, it's exciting Let's talk about Eliza McCartney. I, I've got to be honest, I, I wasn't convinced that she would get back to sort of being able to jump four metres 70. I I don't know, I had this terrible inclination that perhaps Rio might be her pinnacle moment, but I'm so pleased that she's proven me wrong and others wrong and, you know, she's now starting to consistently jump sort of four metres 70, probably needs to find another 10 centimetres to, um, you know, probably genuinely be in the medal hunt in Paris. But, boy, what a, what a wonderful comeback for her. Oh, it's, it's amazing. And as someone who's had uh, Achilles woes myself, it, it can be a really hard road back. And she, she's stuck at it. She's... Um, you know, looked at all the little one percenters, the the nutrition and um, and tweaks to training and all that, and she she's back and with a, a third at the Lausanne Diamond League. That's that's really encouraging. For a moment there, she was the first over four seventy one, so was was in pole position. <laughs> Excuse the pun, and uh, yeah, right on the right on the verge of a potential victory as well. So she's she's up there, and like you say, she she probably needs to be yeah, up in that 480 plus um, to be a, uh, a a real candidate for for a medal but she's she's within Cooey and, and who knows a couple more meets and, and she could be right there mm. Tom Walsh 
Uh, we always hear a lot about Tom wins the odd Golden League meet or Diamond League meet, um, but often finishes second to the likes of Ryan Krauser. I mean, Krauser just appears to be in a class of his own. What's the motivation now for Tom? I mean, you know, he's trying, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're arguably looking at the goat and Ryan Krauser. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of compare it to, you know, what's it like playing alongside Michael Jordan or uh, sprinting alongside Usain Bolt when you're when you're up against the absolute goat. It can feel like you're in their shadow, but any other basically any other generation of shot putter and Tom Walsh is, is leading the, the charge. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's still got the fire in the belly and we saw him get beaten for the first time at the National Champs by Jack O'Gill. Um, so I think that rivalry in itself is, is probably enough to, to keep him um, hammering away in the gym. Uh, but he's, he's a master at peaking at the right time of the season. Uh, so, you, you know, usually comes out the New Zealand uh, summer just getting over 20 metres 20 metres and then inches up into the, the 22s and he's now up, up within 30 centimetres of, of Ryan Krauser at their last meeting on uh, on Friday uh, European time so he's he's close but yeah you, you've got to say Ryan Krauser has got to have a pretty poor day and Tom's got to have a have an excellent day for that those roles to be reversed Okay, I didn't have Jack O'Gill on my list, but now we've talked about him. What is he up to? Is he competing internationally at the moment? I don't know. We um, we don't hear a huge amount of what he's doing. And him and Madison Weshi, our, our female shot putter, um, don't seem to do much of the European season. So I don't know either of those whether they've got plans to enter any diamond leagues um, I'm sure they'll be having some sort of European meets before uh, Budapest which is the, the world champs coming up in August but yeah we don't know right now what, what their, uh, their calendar is looking like um, it would be great to see them both get a bit more exposure and a bit more experience on, on that world tour stage um, but they uh, like training at home they've got great setups here at home um, so yeah, it's a, it can be a balancing athlete, a, a, um, balancing effort for these athletes. At this high performance end of things, do you, do you sacrifice some time in your, your training environment with family and friends uh, for competing, or uh, do you go out there and, and get that experience? Um, but uh, that that battle, that Tom versus Jacko battle, is is a, a truly great one for New Zealand sport. Yeah, and we've got to have rivalries, don't you? You've got to, you know, I say this, to stay number one, you have to train as if you are number two. Uh, look, I, I remember always in the 1980s, 84 Olympics, Peter Renner, uh, 3,000 metre steeplechase, remarkable athlete, led for much of that final. Uh, personal best of 8.14, it's been a long-standing New Zealand record. But Geordie Beamish starting to get close, 8.17 over the weekend. Um, is he now focusing purely on the steeples? Yeah, he's getting close. So uh, he's, I think he's done, what, four steeples now, and he's, I think he's PB'd in, in each of them, just inching closer. Like you say, he's within three seconds now of that. Um, what is what is an ageing record? We've got a couple of these records around New Zealand athletics that are just show the greatness of the, of the athletes who, who did them. But this one's coming up four years of age but it, yeah it certainly looks like a move from Geordie to focus on uh, on the steeples I wouldn't be surprised if he in the process manages to take down the New Zealand 5000 metre record in the process but 
it's it's really cool to see him him choose this this focus, and it's it's one of those events that's obviously quite technical. You got to get that hurdling technique, uh, get the efficiency over over the barriers. Um, so I imagine there's there's quite a few seconds there that he's got it, uh, up his sleeve to tick off that national record. So I, I think it's just a matter of time if he can stay healthy that he will uh, take it um, and. If he can get sort of under 8.10, then he's uh, a factor on, on the world stage. Got got fifth at the uh, Diamond, uh, fourth, sorry, at the Diamond League in Stockholm uh, over the weekend. So he's he's up there with the, on the heels of the big boys, but um, yeah, with uh, just, what was it, a week or two ago, had the world record broken uh, by Gurma, the Ethiopian, so the, the front of the pack is sort of moving away a little bit, but um, if he can get under that New Zealand record under 8-10, then he really becomes a, a factor in the discussion on that global level. Yeah, look, we've seen an awful lot of world records go recently and, you know, a lot of um, world's fastest times that haven't been sort of done for some time. But we do have to, I guess, look at the technology in the shoes. We do have to have a look at the carbon plates. Uh, They do genuinely appear to be making a big difference in terms of allowing athletes to go quicker. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a big, uh, basically since the 2016 Olympics when Nike came out with some prototype shoes that they they shouldn't officially have been uh, wearing in, in that marathon uh, where we saw the, the three Nike shoes uh, take out the three medals in that, that marathon. Uh, but ever since the shoe technology has changed, there's a lot of debate. And, and what we find is the retired runners are the ones who seem to suggest that the shoes are giving uh, a lot of advantage. The current runners are saying, "Well, it kind of it kind of helps a little, but not not a huge amount." So, it's uh, quite a bit of science suggesting there's there's some assistance there. How much we we don't really know, but we're certainly seeing uh, times improve. Um, but whether that's a matter of, of of natural improvement or maybe some, some sort of other assistance is, remains to be seen as well. But the shoes have become an interesting factor, and in, in to athletes, most athletes are saying it's the it's the training factor. So being able to go out and do hard <laughs> hard tempo runs and being able to recover uh, from that. And and so when we look at someone like Jacob Ingebrigtsen, who's um, leading the the charge in middle distance running at the moment from Norway. He's able to do these sessions where twice a day he's out there doing tempo style work, uh, getting the heart rate up to 90% uh, of heart rate max for extended periods of time. And and in the past, you couldn't do that when when you're out running your legs or just be too beaten up. So that's been a big change. Um, How much it's affecting things when, when they're actually out on the racetrack for every every runner um, possibly those who respond better to the shoes are the ones that we're, we're seeing the records broken but yeah it's a, it's a great discussion yeah look I'd rather it being shoes that are allowing athletes to do more because they can recover than what historically was once EPO I guess but we won't get into that one yeah. uh, let's talk yeah. Sam Tanner because Sam Tanner's still continuing to run sort of low 330s um, what, what's he ultimately peaking for I mean is, what would be his target uh, this year, is he looking to try and sneak under three thirty? I'd say so. Whether he's running out of time uh, with quality meets, it seems like the the early season there was a race up in Oslo that he was trying to get into and, and couldn't find a, a spot on, and that went ridiculously quick. Um, with Jacob Ingebrigtsen going, I think three twenty. 
even within yeah. a second of the, the world record. Um, so it would have been great to see Sam get a, a nice toe along in that. But posting a 3.32, very close to his PB set in the Com Games at very fast 3.31. Um, you know, I think for, for Sam, it's, it's he's still a very young and low-mileage athlete, so he, he needs to get some reps under the belt of getting used to that pace of running low 3.30s and, and being able to kick off it. I think that's the, the mm. difference that we want to see is we see him sort of holding on and it'll be great to see that, that yeah. switch to accelerating. Yeah, we shouldn't underestimate that too. Still a young guy, another three or four years, just layer upon layer upon layer and then again you just have that another exactly. breakthrough, don't you, and go to that next level and what athletes don't actually realise is to find that next step, that's where the real hard work is done, but it will come. Uh, let's talk. Yep, let's talk. Hamish Kerr, Commonwealth Games champion, tenth at the Olympic Games in Tokyo, has a win at the same Diamond League meet in Stockholm. Not a, not a great height, two twenty four by his own high standards. But considering the conditions, yep. a win is a win, and that's a really good victory for him. You know, we should also remember he has won a bronze medal at the World Indoors as well. Yeah, and the real key with that meet uh, from from Stockholm was looking down the the list of those who. Had, uh, absolute misfires. So the likes of Tamberi, the the Olympic champion, um, and uh, Wu, the the, the Korean, Korean who's been yep. jumping well this this season, and uh, Brandon Stark, the Aussie. So some big names behind him, um, and so it really looked like just a, a tricky old night for jumping. And goes to show, you know, learning to jump in New Zealand conditions can pay off overseas. So big big notch on his belt getting that first Diamond League win, which is. You know that's that's the equivalent of the the rugby championship. If we compare it to the rugby world, it's it's the next step below Olympics and world champs. Um, so that's that's a massive result for Hamish and uh, bodes well for what's to come as we, we we look towards the world champs. Okay, let's talk Terry. Let's talk Tori Peters. Let's talk the women's javelin. Yeah, so um, she's she's going going great. I. Uh, I haven't heard, you may know this, I've, I've been away for, for no, the weekend, no, but I haven't heard of any results. For no, her look, I, I just, weekend. no, Hayden, really the last time was in Yokohama for me. I just haven't had you on for a while. And so I just, yeah. you, know, you can go back retrospectively and just give us a little bit of an update. Again, I haven't heard anything of what she's done in the last week or so, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I, I was sort of racking my brain if she had any meets uh, coming up, but I don't think she has, but she has uh, yet yeah, re reset her own New Zealand record and that's that's really encouraging for her um, you know javelin is, is one of those events that little little pieces of the puzzle need to be uh, fit, fitted together um, in quite intricate ways and getting that run up right that release and, and the weather conditions and all the all the things need to be heading in the right direction but yeah she got that uh, a few weeks ago in in Japan and um, this year has been the, the year of national records, really. Uh, I've sort of lost count across all the different events, male and female, um, and, and para as well. Just the number of times uh, we've seen national athletics records being, being broken. So it's awesome. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I think she's what thrown 63 metres, 64, 64 and a half sort of, I think, Olympic qualification off the top of my head. I don't have those qualifying numbers here in front of me. Speaking of para-athletics, uh, they start this weekend, 8th of July. Yeah, so 8th of July through to the 17th of July. So we're sending a team of, of seven athletes over there. Um, five of those are uh, previous uh, medalists. 
and um, you know the likes of Lisa Adams in, in the shot put, the sister of Val, um, Anna Grimaldi, um, who's just yeah, very experienced competitor in, in the the long jump, um, and Holly Robertson, Will Steadman um, in the 400 long jump, and Danielle Etchison in the 200 and 100. So that that kind of the the spearhead of the competition and uh, heading over there. And we've also got uh, Mitch Joint, who's a T64 200-meter runner, and um, Joe Smith, who will be debuting wearing the the black singlet for the first time. So it's it's a good team. Um, And my my sort of thinking is, is could that team come away with with, with 10? I'm sort of running the maths and definitely in the hunt for, for eight to nine. Um, but yeah, could could they get up for double figures, which would be absolutely incredible from a, a team of just just seven athletes? Yeah, and I was lucky enough actually to do them when they were here in Christchurch until eleven, just before the earthquake. I've got to say, one of the best experiences yeah. I've actually had um, in, in terms of broadcasting. Oscar Pistorius, Oscar Pistorius, the infamous Oscar Pistorius, was there wow, in Christchurch. Yeah. I think about two weeks later, we ended up having the earthquake, or a week later, last major event yeah. at QE2 Stadium. Hey, um, look, one of the results that I think hasn't got a lot of coverage, but I thought was remarkable, and that was Cameron Avery, one hundred two fifty at the Gold Coast half. I, I didn't know he was capable of going that quick. Bloody great run to finish third. Yeah. It surprised, surprised a few of us. Um, he was our, our top finisher at the World Cross earlier this year, which was uh, also over in Aussie at, at Bathurst. Um, so that strength in the cross country often transitions well onto the onto the roads, half marathon, marathon. So really cool to see 102.50. So to put that in terms of, of how fast that is on the treadmill, just above uh, 20 k's an hour. So most treadmills can't hit that speed. So, so think about that next time you're at the gym. Uh, so he moves to fifth all-time in New Zealand. And then uh, Camille French, um, formerly Camille Buscombe, um, great to see her coming back from only one year after having a baby, and she's gone sub-70 minutes, so with a 109 55 for the half marathon and that is absolutely phenomenal i, ca- I can't yeah <laughs> no look describe I, how I, remember, I think is. i remember kimberly smith i think running around what would she run 66 67 i think yeah. i was about a 72 30 guys a triathlete and then i was just thinking how do you yeah you know a, a, a remarkable it's great to see isn't it it's, it's wonderful speaking of which how's your own form you ran national park you ran the central plateau over the weekend Yes, uh, had a weekend away doing, uh, it was going to be a bit of trail running, but the weather up there was atrocious, so it was just doing sort of small, keeping it keeping it uh, as close to settlements as, as I could because it was blizzard-like conditions up there. But it was fun to, to dress up nice and warm and, and do some um, shorter trail runs around uh, yeah, the central plateau. It's beautiful up there. I just, oh, I just, it's stunning. one of the absolute running playgrounds. Uh, starting from the chateau and then choosing your direction, just just heading out and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real national treasure up there. Yeah, running through that little Papa village down past that waterfall. I've done it, Hayden. I've done it. I know the run you're talking about, and of course the Goat Alpine Adventure <laughs> run down there in February. Hey, um, it's just someone texting. And what what was your special event? Someone wanting to know. Yeah, so I uh, I actually grew up <laughs> skateboarding and surfing. Uh, I did I did have a love for running. Uh, at primary school, but was very distracted through my my teenage years um, by the uh, alternative sports, should I say? And then, uh, actually, in my twenties, picked up um, 
running and, and competed in 1500s through to, through to marathons, um, but quickly found myself in the world of, world of coaching. And, uh, you know, for me, I discovered running as, as a means to keep your body and mind healthy and happy. And, and that was the, the thing that really got me into, into uh, commentating and, uh, and publishing, written a couple of books on, on running. And uh, and coaching, just wanting to get uh, everyday Joes out there running and, and really learning how to make um, make use of that to improve not just your, the health of your body but the the health of your mind as well, which is such an important part of it. Um, yeah, so that, that that's my background. I, I never competed for New Zealand. Um, would have loved to, uh, but you know we're not all blessed with the same genes of the Zoe Hobbs and the, the Sam Tanners. Uh, no, p- people say of me that you can't put back in what God left out, but that's not the case with you, Hayden. Hey, Hayden, lovely to have you on the program, my good man. Thank you for the update. Yes, no, no worries. Always happy to talk athletics. And look, the next six weeks are going to be fantastic with the World Powers next so, next weekend. Okay. And make sure you you stay tuned, everyone, for all the all the action. Well, we'll keep you updated. We might bring you back in a couple of weeks to update all of that. Thank you, Hayden Sherman. There, uh, he really has established himself in more recent times as one of the real voices of athletics. New Zealand had the privilege of working with him. I've got to say, what an absolute gentleman and a scholar he is. It is twenty six minutes after eight. 60 years since a driver has won in their series debut. Well, through turn 11, Shane Van Gisbergen has been perfect. He has navigated the streets of Chicago to perfection. The final time onto the front stretch. He comes to the checkered flag. He's won the very first street race in NASCAR. A simply remarkable moment for New Zealand sport, a remarkable moment for Shane Van Gisbergen. What a moment for New Zealand motorsport. You've never driven a NASCAR. Everything, you're used to driving on the right-hand side, everything's on the left-hand side. Your pedal's a slightly different setup. It's a completely different car. It's the first time in 75 years NASCAR take their product onto the roads, a street circuit in downtown Chicago, Huge money, the fourth biggest sport in America behind basketball, baseball and NFL. And Shane Van Gisbon wins on debut, the first time in 60 years, 75 years since the NASCAR was established. So they're celebrating 75 years. Now, due to the length of the uh, interview I had with Hayden, a little bit of time on our commercial break. So we're going to take a break here, but please do not go away. I'm going to bring you the press conference of Shane Van Gisbergen in the United States. Boy, he is impressive. Man, he comes across well. He is a class act, somebody New Zealand should be incredibly proud of. By the way, if you hear sponsors and you hear the adverts, please go with those brands that are here supporting SENZ. 60 years since a driver has won in their series debut. Well, through turn 11, Shane Van Gisbergen has been perfect. He has navigated the streets of Chicago to perfection. The final time onto the front stretch. He comes to the checkered flag. He's won the very first street race in NASCAR. Thank you, guys. What a driver. Wow. Unbelievable performance. What a class act. Here is the press conference after creating history, winning the first ever street race for NASCAR. 75 years they're celebrating downtown streets of Chicago, Shane Van Gisbergen on debut. 
uh, the short answer is no. <laughs> like it's something you, I guess, you dream about. But um, yeah, as Justin was saying, when he first approached me about it, he said it could happen, and I'm on the short list. And yeah, when he gave me that call, um, it was it was pretty special. And yeah, I guess preparation started. I uh, admittedly I haven't watched NASCAR watched NASCAR too closely the last couple of years. I was a big fan. Uh, you know, like 10 years ago. So I was a big Tony Stewart fan. So working with Darian was, was pretty special. But um, yeah, I became a student of the sport really and um, tried to study as much as I can about how the races were and how the drivers are, how the cars are. And I was a bit scared after Coda. But um, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Like coming a week early, going to Nashville, being part of the Trackhouse team and, and then meeting all the Project 91 guys. Like the prep was intense but um we were very thorough and i felt ready and um yeah i knew it was going to be difficult though like the amount of road courses the guys do now they're they're very good drivers here and it was um it was tough qualifying yesterday was intense and the racing the the battles were they were really fun but everyone was respectful and clean and it was really cool shane uh, i know kyle larson came to congratulate you but uh when he was in here he was wondering, uh, I guess, what you thought about the field. He said, I think when a guy like that can come in and kick your ass at your own game, it shows we all have room to improve. I'm curious what he thinks about us. He obviously passed a lot of us, so I'm curious if he thinks we all suck or if we could actually compete like if we weren't really that bad. So what, what did you think of them? I'm sure if it was an oval, it would be the other way around. I guess this is my sort of bread and butter, the street circuits we do. Almost half of our series races are, are street street circuits, so I'm comfortable with the walls. Um, took me a bit to learn the proximity of the car, um, having the car on the other side of me, so I was missing apexes, turning left, and struggling turning right to know where that side of the car was. Um, but yeah, I got I got better and better, and in qualifying, I left a lot on the table. Like it's very intimidating on these straights. You have a 90 degree corner and no runoff, so. I left a lot on the table and breaking and every lap today I was learning and getting better but those guys are good in the wet you know the tire was so different to anything I'm used to but they were straight into it and and just into it and when I got on the slicks again I was probably a bit too timid and um, the guys were all over me the next restart I was just trying to find my feet a bit and figure out how everyone races and, and what it's like and you know everyone's good and the passes they were making were committed and you know, I, I probably was a bit too nice to some people, but, you know, that's that's how it was. And then coming back through the field, I thought, you know, once the race got shortened, we had to pit to be able to make it on fuel. And I thought it was going to be difficult from 18th. And, you know, I don't know the paint schemes that well or the numbers. So I was kind of re trying to read the numbers on the windscreen to figure out who people were when I come up on them. And, um, you know, kind of remember who's good and who's not. And, yeah, had some really good battles coming through. Some guys waved to me and some guys battled hard, which was really cool. Um, and everyone was clean and I got a couple of taps. I tapped a couple of people and there was that crazy restart at turn 11. Um, the spotter was going off. I've never raced with a spotter before and I normally would have just barreled on and joined the crash. So it was pretty cool to, to see how that side of it works. Where do you think this one ranks? Um, because I've certainly got it uh, right up there. It's obviously pretty high, but um, it's still like supercars is my dream and, you know, winning that championship and, and races like Bathurst over there are still top of the list. But to come in and do this, like, yeah, I don't know where it ranks yet. It's still sinking in, but it's obviously one of the most special victories I've ever had. And, yeah, to share it with so many people, to have my dad come over and a few other family and, yeah, like the team, how how awesome this team is. Like, it's great. Trackhouse is such a cool 
organization to be part of like the atmosphere and the teams i've never really experienced anything like it before probably more relaxed than i've seen in a couple of years i mean does it feel like this is the sort of place that you could come to race full time i miss racing in the states like i've done daytona four or five times now and just the way the american people are and how they go racing it's so much more enjoyable and even doing the media stuff which i hate like everyone here is really nice they ask good questions and you know they're they're respectful and it goes both ways so yeah everyone here has made me feel comfortable and it's so enjoyable the way the races are run like the qualifying at nashville i couldn't believe how relaxed everyone was but then it was like a switch the intensity turns on and away it goes so yeah i'm committed next year to supercars i i still love supercars and hope it Hope it goes well there, um, but in 25, who knows? All right, Jeff, did you have a question? Or Jordan, sorry, go ahead. Jordan Bianco with The Athletic. Uh, you thought you had a motor problem there, or were you just being a little paranoid and hearing things? Yeah, I got close to the fence, and it echoes funny off the fence sometimes, and I thought it sounded a bit funny, and I looked at the, the lap times. We went from doing high 29s to 31s on that last restart. And I wasn't really pulling away that much where I felt like I was trying. So, And then the water pressure, I don't really understand Imperial that much. So <laughs> the settings are a little bit different to me. So I started stressing when they they change color. But, um, you know, that's normal under yellow and under green and stuff. And I had put the radiator fans on for when I was in traffic. And it just got too cold when I was out front. So that was my bad. And, yeah, I need to, need to be able to switch or, or get them to change the dash to Celsius. Yeah. Um, one thing I saw was there was quite a few of your supporters here from Australia and New Zealand. Did you get a chance to interact with a lot of them? What was that like kind of throughout the weekend? Yeah, like in, I've never done 50,000 photos on the podium before, but there was um, some guys with SVG shirts that came from Australia and came to watch the race. So they snuck up onto the podium and took some photos with them. But man, I, I, the support we've had and the interest from Australia and New Zealand, it's been... Um, yeah, it's overwhelming and, and so cool to see how interested people are in, in this race and hopefully um, it shows how good our supercar drivers are and opens the floodgates like and, and we can come over here and race. There hasn't been anyone from supercars since Marcus really come and have a go, um, but there's plenty of good drivers now wanting to come and try expand and come over here and any any of the top 10 in supercars are, are good enough to come and do what I just did. It was a big deal changing the city streets to... Uh race car track here in Chicago but also this is usually the weekend where it rains so how did this track compare to what you have experienced before what kind of adjustments did you have to make based on the way the track ran and the, the weather yeah it's pretty similar to some tracks we have like the last half of surface paradise is pretty similar to this in some ways but the changes in surface were extreme like to go from old to new and then the concrete i've never driven on concrete like that really maybe sebring a little bit but then when it rained the concrete was crazy slippery for everyone so quite 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 different but for nascar like their first ever street race and the way the weekend run unfortunately the the xfinity series didn't happen but yeah it's um credit to nascar to nail it on their first weekend and hopefully it leads to more street courses and i'd love to be here for them when did you know toward the end of that race that you could win the race and, and then talk me through that that battle with Justin Haley at the end where y'all went back and forth into turn about four five six yeah when I um started catching him I actually put a move on him into 
seven right when the yellow come out. So that's when I thought I knew it would be okay because he didn't defend as hard as I thought. But yeah, after that restart, it was a good battle. And out of turn two, I probably could have shut him down more aggressively, but I didn't have the mirror set up good enough on that side and let him get through. Um, but I saw when I was catching him, he was a little bit weak into the turn four breaking. So I just let him have it and then crossed to the inside. But that was probably one of my car's strengths was, was breaking there. And But yeah, he was awesome to race against. And the guys told me he'd probably be aggressive at the restarts. He doesn't, I don't think he's locked into the chase, they said. So yeah, I tried to get as good of a jump out of the last corner to make a gap into turn one. So I'm just curious, you know, Marcus Ambrose, of course, a lot of experience in NASCAR. Did you talk with him at all before this race? Yeah, and he was amazing how how open he was. Uh, it's probably himself uh, and Owen Kelly. Also, Boris said a little bit. They they were so open about how to fit in, really, and what to expect, how the guys are going to race. And Marcus was, was awesome. So, um, yeah, can't thank him enough. And every little bit of preparation, um, it, it all helped, all that advice. So, yeah, it was it was really cool. And, yeah. Y- yeah, and what piece of advice I, that he gave you, uh, what came into play during the race today that you really noticed? Yeah, don't talk about understeer and oversteer. No one knows what that is here. It's all loose and tight and stuff like that. So had to change my terminology a bit. Darian's um, good old boy. Have to use those words. And it was cool. Like you hear that stuff. Everyone talk about it on the radio. And it's quite different way of working and describing the car and the way the pit stops work, the spotters, like... It's a completely different world to me. So, yeah, all that all that little stuff added up. Kyle, Kyle Bush was in here earlier, uh, and he said and it was it was his assessment that because of your experience with V8 supercars, that you have four to eight years on the full time Cup guys when it comes to driving this next gen car because of their similarities. So, just based off of like a week of driving this car, do you think that's anywhere close to a accurate? assessment i don't really know the answer but uh, definitely a street circuit i'm more comfortable in and a comeback next year a lot of those guys will be quicker but the way the car achieves its speed is very different with the aero under the floor rather than over the top with the spoilers and wings like we have so yeah riding on the bump stops here it's it was crazy like how bumpy this track was but it's so powerful the underfloor that they do everything they can to activate it so you can see everyone just hitting the bumps and riding so hard. Whereas we in Australia run so high and soft to try and make the car compliant. So very different philosophy. And then, and then of course the rear diff, we have a lock diff and this car has you know an open one and it just turns so much better than what we have. So yeah, huge differences in cars, but I think the street races, you know, the more they do here, the, the better they'll get. You could see guys leaving a lot on the table on corner exits to the wall where I wasn't afraid of getting close, yeah. Well, boy, he comes across well, doesn't he? Just just an engineer's mind, just understands racing. You just listen to that. And I'd imagine that he just had that press conference just captivated with some of those answers. You don't often hear that level of detail and drawing comparisons between supercars and NASCARs and, you know, the setup being on the other side, left versus right. Um, very gracious. Yes, he had the advantage. He used to racing you know street circuits but having to get used to a completely different car completely different setup and come up against the americans who you know you know what the americans are like if they're the best at it they're the best in the world um you know the only country in the world that has world championships without other countries actually participating but 
Um, yeah, well, and you expect them to be in NASCAR, I think, full-time to come 2.25. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more here on SENZ. OK, seven minutes away from nine. We'll talk to Garth Galloway after nine o'clock. He has been at the test over there in Lourdes. We spoke to him uh, last week prior to the start of it. Uh, what does he make of all? Or is there such thing of the spirit of cricket? Does that actually exist, the spirit of the game? Is that just wishful thinking these days? I think it did exist at a point. Brendan McCullum being called out for being a bit of a hypocrite. People remember 2006, I think it was the Black Caps. It was against Sri Lanka, wasn't it? And McCullum ran out and tire Mularitharan. Um, I think he'd stepped out of his crease. Yeah, one of his teammates scored a century, didn't he? And he went out to celebrate him and McCullum stumped him. Now, look, Brendan's come out since then and regretted that. Said he was young, he was dumb. As you get older, you start to understand the spirit of the game. I think there's been enough incidents involving the Australian cricketers over the years where they clearly just don't care about the spirit of the game. I think there was a spirit of the game once, but as I said earlier, I think the chapels came in to Australian cricket in the 1970s and I think the whole thing disappeared. Um, Anyway, we'll get his thoughts on this, get his thoughts generally on the test because believe it or not, there was actually some really good cricket played as well. Another thoroughly entertaining match. Uh, All said and done though, there'll be just a massive audience on this third test, won't there? Huge, huge audience. I think it's Edge Baston this week. Is it Edge Baston or Hedenley? One of them. Um, it's funny, isn't it, that we're now all interested in cricket that doesn't even involve New Zealand. I, I find it intriguing. I, I find it riveting. Uh, there's not a lot of sport these days which I find is appointment viewing um, as a default setting. But with what McCullum's done and Ben Stokes and the way they want to play the game, then you throw in the angst and the nastiness. But the class of the Australian cricket team as players, not necessarily as people, uh, but as players, uh, just creates this just wonderful package, doesn't it? And while the Australian cricket team irk me, and I don't agree with what they did with Bearstow and the hypocrisy of you know, wanting to apply the rules of the game to justify the stumping of Bearstow, but yet don't want the same rules to be applied to the Stark catch, uh, I struggle with. Uh, But look, you know, this is what rugby needs. Sports should be looking at this Ashes series for the villains, the athleticism, the drama, the theatre, the celebrations, and saying that is the package. But what's rugby done in this country? Well, it's sanitised everything. It's just boring. There's no off-field antics. There's no personality anymore. There's no angst. Uh, The product's fairly average. And they wonder why viewing ratings are starting to slip or are slipping. Anyway, we'll do that after 9 o'clock. What's the music, Ben? Not really my taste. What is it? You just found something on the button bar and thought you'd just play it. Ad hoc. Well, I guess to the thing when you're not prepared and you're like, well, that's why I need to play something. So you're literally, it's literally like closing your eyes, it's going around in a circle. See, I've got school holidays, so in our car when we're driving places, and my daughter had uh, some one-on-one swim stuff today, we had to go into the tepper baths in the city, and um, I let them, they love their music, it's great. I'm really pleased my son, who's nine, and my daughter's 11 and a half, really love their music, because I didn't get into music until much later in life. In fact, my first real big band was Guns N' Roses, 1988, and I was born in 1970. A little bit of uh, Kiss, I remember growing up, a um, few other things, but never really a big part of my life. Anyway, digressing, I let them, we have a song each, and I must admit that some of the stuff they actually pick, 
Um, I've never been a big fan of, but it grows on me. Lewis Capaldi, is it? Capaldi? Um, not a bad little singer-songwriter, to be honest. Sort of uh, slightly unorthodox-looking Scotsman who's been recently diagnosed with Tourette's. Aren't most Scotsmen like that, though? Tourette's, yeah, but I think he's sort of... Um, Garth Galloway just telling us that he's a couple of stops away. He's on a train. We're going to go to London shortly and talk some ashes with Garth. Uh, but, yeah, so... Um, but. Yeah, slightly um, unorthodox-looking character, and I, you know, I even heard um, who's the dude um, that was out here recently, the pretty boy part of that boy band, oh, Harry Styles. Oh, Styles. I've got to say, he's actually got quite a unique sound. He's actually um, it's quite catchy, to be fair. Oh, I'm not afraid to say that, but I wouldn't listen to it unless the kids introduced it to me. And so sometimes, you know, but I, at the same time, when it's my turn, I introduce them. You know, my son goes, oh, Dad, what's that song, Highway to Hell? I heard it on a, uh, I don't know, a movie or a, um, a TikTok bloody video thing that they always click on. And so I play that. And then occasionally I'll play a little bit of um, Guns and Roses or various things. And like most music, if you play it enough, you start to hear it a bit better, don't you? It starts to become a bit more catchy, a lot of stuff. I mean, it's got to come with recommendation. Uh, there, uh, there have been songs in the past where when I first heard them, I disliked them. And then I just heard them so often, it's just like, eh, it's all right, you know. You just hear it that that much. Yeah, or, or you hear a song and you hear a song and you hear a song and you hear a song, you don't take much notice, and then you're out somewhere about two weeks later and the song comes on and you go, that's actually quite a cool catchy tune, I know that tune, and then you suddenly go home with a different appreciation but, of it. Do you know the one genre of music, though, that I can simply not stand? Gangster. Well, actually, I didn't even classify gangster, so two then. Um, opera, drum and bass, drum and bass. Can't stand it. Can't you? Hate it with a passion. What's an example of drum and bass? Oh, I don't have anything, but I'm not even going to attempt to try it. But it's essentially, do you know that you know that song Down Under, and there was like that remix version of it. Yeah. And they kind of get songs, and they oh, kind of yeah. and they kind of got the people that have like the big yeah, yeah. desk like us, and they just make random tunes over the top of it. And there's a reason for that. It's because at a previous job, um which was about nearly it was pretty much 12 hour days working people used to that's what they would play because it was just on a speaker mm. and used to hear the same songs about three or four times a day and it was yeah, just I can't painful. I can't do the health stuff I can't do that sort of electronic music and I see these DJs and they're clearly like rock stars in Germany and stuff and they sold out stadiums but electronic music it just to me just I think it's kind of, it's almost in that same it, kind it of It sort of just sounds the same. And I know you've probably got to be tripping on something, don't you? You've got to probably sort of go with some sort of recreational drug, almost to sort of, um, I don't know, go to that place, man. And, you know, mind you, let's be honest, rock and roll, it's always been associated with drugs, music and drugs probably always go together, don't you? Anyway, anyway, um, we're just waiting for Garth. He just texted me, he said he's at Vauxhall Station. He's two stops away. So I might just get on Google and have a look at the Vauxhall, Vauxhall on the London Underground. I want to know where he is. I don't know the tube system that well. Vauxhall um, Station. Let's have a look. UK, London, London. At Waterloo, he said, call me in five minutes. Vauxhall Station, London. Let's give me an image of it. I want to have a look at the map, though, man. I want to have a look at the map. Where's Vauxhall? Oh, Waterloo. Okay. We go. All right. Not exactly great radio, is it? But anyway, that's where Garth is at the moment. Um, it's not too far from the 
Teams. Looking at a map I've got. Do you think he's bought any art today? Um, he loves his art. I've got to say, I had a look at some of the art and artists that he talked about last time. Uh, we had him on last week, and he, he's a mad art collector, and he was up visiting a couple of galleries in Scotland and a couple of Scottish artists and English artists that he liked, and we Googled them because I was curious to sort of see what style and what sort of um, yeah artistic style these artists were, and I've got to say that... Yeah, I could see the appeal in it. Do you think I could try selling some of my landscape photos? No, probably not. Uh-uh. No. It's worth a, sh- worth a shot. Well, I mean, you know, just be abstract. All you have to do with art, mate, is be really good at English and be able to just write some bullshit below it with big words and come up with something really airy-fairy. But whether you like art or not, art's actually about being the first. So you can have a look at a lot of art and go, yeah, but it's just... A red background with a white dot. Yes, but he was the first person to paint and commercialise 50 years ago a red background and a white dot. And then he provided a really cool description of what he was, what his interpretation is and it becomes art. So to me, art is like wine. I don't exactly love it, but I kind of like, I like the story behind it. Yeah, some and art. The work that goes into yeah, it. Yeah, some art. I mean, good art, you just sort of sit there and you stare at it, don't you? I've got a couple of really nice uh, pieces that a friend gave to me, actually, from a, um, from a New Zealand artist, Paul Hooker, who's actually a, um, a portrait painter. And it's stunning, and they're custom, and they're actually got sort of New Orleans themes, very much around African American music and trumpets and jazz and stuff. My wife hates them. And I love them. So, so what, what do you think? Do you think they're up in the house, Ben? Of course they're yeah, not. Of course they're not, mate. Of course there's not. There's no compromise, man. Compromise goes out the window when you put the ring on the finger. As you know, mate, I, I just moved house recently and um, I grabbed a couple of things from my from my parents' house and uh, I, I, put, I put a couple of things in the, in the room and Krista comes home today and she said, what, what's that doing there? And I'm like, oh, so I'm not allowed anything up I like. No. No, we no. have to discuss it. And that's like, so we discuss it and then you decide. Hey, look, what we will do, we're going to just take a break so that we can have some quality time here with oh, quality time. That's scary, isn't it? Quality time. Yeah, that's another thing that goes with marriage. What about just having some quality time? But see, when I was training full time as an athlete, you know, I had a few girlfriends and said, why do you have to go riding and swimming on a Saturday and do this? What about quality time? It's like, well, firstly, I was doing this before I met you. And what's your definition of quality time? Well, I don't actually have a plan, but it's us just doing nothing together. It never really lasted, never really worked. Quality time was swimming four and a half K in the pool and riding 200 kilometres. Anyway, nine minutes after nine. Second test at Lords. Believe it or not, probably a lot of people might not be aware of this, but actually Australia won this test by 43 runs. But the focus has been all about Johnny Bairstow. It's been all about the spirit of the game. Is there such a thing as the spirit of the game? Well, my argument is that when the Chapels took over Australian cricket in the 1970s, the spirit of the game disappeared with it. And I think the Australians have... Um, yeah, uh, certainly I don't think they've played cricket in the last, well certainly in my lifetime <laughs> in the spirit of the game but they're certainly not the only ones Now, Garth Galloway cricket commentator we regularly have on the programme was lucky enough to be at Lords over the last five days he joins us out of London Garth, good morning, welcome Yeah, thanks Mark uh, at Waterloo Station, so I'm sorry if there's a bit of noise in the background, but we'll we'll do our best 
Yeah, no, we, when you texted me and said you were on Voxel, we jumped on Google and had a look at the uh, tube map just to find out where you were in London. I have <laughs> been on the tubes, but I've got to say I've never spent a long time to become f- completely familiar with them. Uh, Garth, is there such a thing as the spirit of the game in cricket anymore? Oh, there is. Um, you know, there is in the way some teams play it. I mean, I think we come back to the Australian thing. It's quite interesting looking at the the writing about it today. And, you know, there are mixed views. There are criticisms of Bairstow for leaving his crease. Uh, and likewise, there are just as many uh, vehement uh, views which are pro-England and anti-Australia. There's a very good article in The Telegraph uh, written about how uh, the, the author believes that you know, the spirit of cricket is not alive and well and that Australia breached it yet again yesterday. Uh, and I tend to I tend to agree with that. It, it, it seems all rather glib. We read Kawaja saying that uh, they left it to the umpires, Pat Cummins saying they left it to the umpires and the umpires ruled them out. But of course, uh, the cricket is littered with uh, examples of where players uh, have been called back by captains, notwithstanding that an umpire has given them out. And, uh, you know, there's reference in... Uh, 2011 to a test between India and England when uh, M.S. Dhoni called Ian Bell out, uh, back, having been given out in very similar circumstances. So technically, of course, the batsman's out in terms of the spirit of the game. Was it in the spirit? Well, Dhoni called Bell, Bell back in 2011 in a, in a very good series. And uh, for me, I think it's very good of the Australians to say, look, we left it to the umpire. Um, you know, it, it, it's also, I thought about it, you know, when you watch... Uh, schoolboy cricket or, you know, really sort of bad cricket, you often see the wicketkeepers grabbing the ball and underarming it and trying to hit the stumps, you know, and it's an infuriating thing and, and I always think uh, pretty amateurish and ironically it's exactly what the Australians have done. So uh, they, they've, um, they've won the battle but lost the, you know, lost the war in many respects in terms of, of sportsmanship, I think. Yeah, the thing I struggle with is listening to a lot of former Australian captains and cricketers and listening to the team themselves talking about, well, you know, that's the rules of the game. Yet the day before, Stark takes a catch, and I think it probably, you know, probably should have been given out. However, under the rules of the game, it was not deemed to be a catch, and therefore the umpires got it exactly right. But the Australians conveniently didn't want to apply the rules of the game to that incident and I struggle with their complete and utter hypocrisy uh, from game to game. Uh, We saw the sledging of Usman Khawaja and I think I heard a number of Australians going, well it's not within the spirit of the game. Yeah, well I mean I I don't think Australia understand the spirit of the game. They they will take, um, and from what I've seen of them in my lifetime, uh, you know, any opportunity. I mean, I do remember in 74, uh, in the centenary test between England and Australia, uh, you know, a wonderful moment when Rod Marsh called Derek Randall back. And, uh, you know, Randall, uh, Marsh, the Australian keeper, Randall, uh, the middle-order batsman for England, and the ball dropped in front of Marsh. And Randall scored a, hundred, a big 100 in that game. And, and Marsh called him back, and it was revered as a great act of sportsmanship, Marsh saying that he didn't catch the ball, and of course they didn't have the technology in those days. I think if you look at the context of this again, and you think about the the, man, the, 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 man, the example I've given you, MS Dhoni and Ian Bell, and Dhoni calling back mm. Bell in 2011, Shane Warne was on the uh, TV at the time commentating, 
and he criticised India for um, seeking to dismiss the player in that way uh, and said it was not within the spirit of the game and he should be recalled. So there you are, there's Australia's great uh, saying that in 2011 and I'm happy to share that, to share that view and stick with it. Yeah, look, um, Brendan McCullum's come under a little bit of criticism here for a bit of hypocrisy because clearly there was an incident back in 2006 when he was young. He was in the Black Caps. Um, he ran out Mataya Mularitharan, who had stepped yep. out of his crease to celebrate a century for Kumar Sankakara. But I think unlike the Australians, as Brendan got older um, and matured, he realised that it was dumb. He realised that you know, given another opportunity that he wouldn't have done it and he apologised for it. But you'll never, ever hear an Australian apologise 10 years, 15, 20 years no, from now. No, no. And that is the difference. No, no I agree. And, and I read an article and stuff with interest, which I thought was just churlish about McCullum, you know, uh, referencing uh, three incidents, 2005, 2006 and 2009, and saying how ironic his comments are because of things he did. I mean, what that writer and everybody else who criticism, criticises him uh, in this context misses is he said in his comments to the media, you know, what I learned in playing the game for a long period of time is that these things don't sit well. Mm. He learned through his own experience. He was asked, uh, you know, by the MCC uh, to make the Colin Cowdery spirit of cricket speech because of his sportsmanship. When he retired uh, from the game, as I said to you last time we spoke, Ed Smith, who is a wonderful writer, described him as singularly the greatest influence on the game since Bradman, and that's because uh, that he recognised his failings in playing the way he had. And that's the thing that those um, journalists who, who write these sort of uh, self-serving and, uh, and very brief uh, factors, uh, articles, which ignore the context of McCullum's comments. Uh, and, and that's the point that I think needs to be made. I also had to laugh, you know, we saw the World Test Championship against India and there was a lot of controversy over whether Cameron Green took a catch or not and most people felt it wasn't a catch. Um, but they're more than happy to, you know, say, no, it is what it is. Yet again, I go back to the start catch, you know, given not out and suddenly they jump up and down and every former cricketer, you know, um, yeah, they, they, there's no consistency in their arguments. They just tend to sort of, um, you know, pick and choose based on what best suits the Australians. And I guess that's the thing that I struggle with. One of the other things, um, and look, it's probably a little bit sensitive, but when Philip Hughes passed away, um, I heard Michael Clark at the time give a eulogy and he talked very much about the spirit of the game and the importance of the spirit of the game. And... You know, I, I sort of feel, and, and look, it was a great speech, but I feel it's just sort of a little bit disingenuous now, just a little bit of lip service, because uh, the Australians haven't taken any of that on board. I, I, I don't think half the time they believe a word they say. Well, I think it's a really sad incident that occurred. And, um, you know, at best, I say, let, let's just be absolutely clear about this. The Australians were within the letter of the law. There's absolutely. No, there's no question about that. And, 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 you know, they're allowed to, to do it. What, what I think, um, you know, would have been within the spirit of the, of the game would have been to say to Bearstow, look, because they said that he'd been going out of his crease. I mean, also, he's not trying to gain any advantage no. by doing that. it was the end of the he, over. He, he, if you, it was the end of the over. The umpires had turned away. They hadn't Correct. called over, but they had turned away. Uh, you saw Bearstow marking his crease again with his foot, and then he walks out to go and talk to Stokes, and they used that moment 
to run him out. Um, what If they were really concerned about the fact that he was walking out of his crease, one of the things they could have done is said, look, if you keep doing this, we're going to shy at the stumps, and if we hit and you're out, you know, we're going to appeal. Then, then, then Bairstow's on, on notice. That's no different, uh, it seems to me, to a bowler uh, running through, holding the ball and saying at the, at the non-striker's end, look, if you keep backing up a metre outside the crease, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. to run, run it out. Now, there have been examples. You and Chatfield, of course, famously ran out Derek Randall um, in the 1970s at, uh, at Christchurch, Lancaster Park without warning him, um, you know, and there was an awful lot yeah. of uh, media in relation to that, and not surprisingly. But, I, you know, I, I think, you would think, and it sounds churlish, but uh, Broad and Co. would be well within their rights now to, to seek to man-cat people, to run batters out at the, at the non-strikers end. The umpires would have to give them out, and if the Australians, as, as they would have it, uh, it would be, well, it's over to the umpire, and Cummins is not going to intervene, you, you know, it, it would would not intervene on this occasion, so why would the England captain? Yeah, I, I mean, they won't do it, because because Stokes will play the game within the spirit of the game. Yeah, but uh, look, uh, yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah, if I was in charge, I'd bloody do exactly that and just turn around and go, hey, mate, you know, hey, if it's within the rules of the game, let the umpires decide. Uh, look, um, the other thing is, uh, you know, Stuart Broad uh, clearly gave um, Carrie a real serve out there and said, look, this is what you're going to be remembered for. Alex Carey, and yep. you know, there's been a lot of you know, and there's been a lot of articles on social media and uh, different fan websites calling, uh, calling, you know, referring, sorry, yeah, ref, referring um, to Stuart Broad as Stuart. I don't walk Broad. Going back to the incident back in 2019 <laughs> when he got a clear edge, and I'm like, well, when was the last time? An Australian walked. When you know, when was the last time Adam Gilchrist always said that he walked? But Adam Gilchrist also behind the stumps was more than happy to appeal for catches that weren't. Uh, was also more than happy to go up and appeal for LBWs that were never really going to be given out LBW on the hope the umpire got it wrong. So I mean, it's it, it, it it's it's just an absolutely ridiculous the way the Australians, you know, the the classic bullies, very good at giving it, but just can't take it. Uh, well, I've, I've always shared that view, um, you know, and, and it was interesting being in the crowd yesterday. I mean, people who have been to Lords many times say that they've never uh, heard a crowd like it. I mean, the crowd were really riled and um, a, a lot of chanting. And it was a Sunday ticket, so a slightly different crowd to to usual possibly because the Sunday tickets uh, go on sale during the match, the last day of the test. And, you know, it might have been a slightly different crowd. But even the members, apparently, um, up in the pavilion uh, were uh, booing the Australians. I don't mean inside when they walked through, and that shouldn't have happened. Kawaja and Warner should not have been subjected to abuse when they walked through the long room. That is something that the MCC will take, I'm sure, um, serious action about. Yeah, three members have been suspended, yep. Yeah, and rightly so. And, and I suspect that they... Uh, if it's proven that they were abusing the players, I suspect they'll be kicked out of the club, and so they should be. But that's a different issue to the to, to the actual members up in the stand who were um, all feeling quite strongly about this and, and, and booing the Australians and so on. You know, Lords has, has never seen a day like it, I don't think, and I'm I'm, I'm really informed by, the, yeah. by people who have been there many, many times. Yeah. The Australian fans, though, around us, were utterly uh, vitriolic about it and and so unpleasant, swearing... Uh, this is when the dismissal took place. And as England got closer and closer, and Broad and uh, Stokes 
looked like they had a chance of winning the game, they all packed up and left, which I thought was interesting. Mm. Oh, look, as I said, the, the only country in the world that can take Ned Kelly and Chopper Reed and make them national heroes, Garth. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the other thing I think that's interesting about the match is is where Test cricket is going, and I think it's worth worth just, just touching on. This, yeah, no, please, because uh, I, I was going to say, know, I mean, at the end of the day, you look at the engagement in the first test, you look at the engagement, you cannot imagine how much engagement there's going to be in the third test, and like it or not, it's two Kiwis at the centre of it, Ben Stokes, Brendan McCullum. Yeah, well, it's only three days away up in uh, at Headingley, and the Headingley crowd known for being uh, fairly spicy <laughs> and not holding back. So, so it, it'll be interesting. The series is uh, very much alive, um, alive and well. Although England fighting, you know, really fighting a losing battle, I suspect from being two 0 down. But I think that the point that struck me about it the the second session yesterday uh, was incredibly dull. That first hour, as England and, and and I do think it's slightly ironic that England talk about playing you know, so positively and so on, that they resort to the short pitch bowling, um, which if the Australians were not going to be baited by it, turns the game into a a soporific experience. It's just so dull. And that first hour after lunch was like that. And then we saw Green inexplicably, having been so disciplined, uh, swat (laughs) at a short ball and get out. And suddenly, you know, we saw Australia starting to fall apart under the short pitch delivery. We've seen England doing it in the first inning so badly, uh, batting so poorly for the short pitch delivery. And, and I, I was just reflecting on where it leaves a player like James Anderson. So if the pitches are going to be reasonably flat as the first two have been, um, and there isn't swing and seam movement for a bowler, Anderson really doesn't have a place because he's simply not quick enough and, and unable to bowl you know, that short pitch bowling. We saw field set yesterday where there were uh, five or six players back on the boundary. At times when Stokes was on strike, every single Australian player was back on the boundary. Um, And you start to wonder uh, what is the future of the game if sides are simply going to resort to short pitch bowling. And and look, you know, this is a real thing. It's happening. New Zealand started it uh, under, ironically, McCullum with Wagner. Um, and it was effective in New Zealand conditions when things were very flat and not much else was happening. Other sides have adopted it, and, uh, you know, it makes for interesting viewing, but I I think the game has to consider, you know, in terms of field placing, how many players back on the boundary are allowed, Mm. and so on. And I think it also means that, you know, different sort of bowlers are going to have to be used now if this is going to be continued. Yeah, and Neil Wagner will be playing till 50. Um... Yeah, but yeah, again, I mean, yeah, you can look at that. I mean, do you restrict the number of uh, short balls in an over even more? Uh, Do you have to have a minimum requirement when it comes to the quality of a pitch? But then, how do you manage that in the subcontinent? So, yeah, it's a it's a fascinating one. The fact though that there has been so much controversy on this day, I'd imagine without the best issue, if England had lost this test. The media would have gone after McCullum and Stokes. This will be about Baz Ball, how irresponsible it is. We're two 0 yep. down in the series, but I sense now this has just galvanised the English. This has just brought an entire nation together now. And even though they're down two 0 we just want to win the third. We want to win the fourth. We just hate Australia. I, I think I, I think you're absolutely right, and um, I, I I do think that had well. And the interesting thing is that when Bearstow and Stokes were together. And the way that Bearstow started, you know, Australia to run him out on that way or to get him stumped in that way clearly thought that um, he was a threat. Otherwise, you know, they might have been a bit more spirited about it. Um, and I felt, I felt that, you know, 
that, that ironically, uh, in looking back at how well board batted, they, they must have had a chance of, of winning it yesterday. I, I agree with you. I think that, um, that, you know, I mean, England's batting in the first innings was deplorable, and let's, let's not make any mistake about that. We saw Root get out off a no ball, pulling a ball. We then saw him pulling another one and getting out. Uh, Duckett being caught down at long leg. Uh, Brooke playing just one of the worst shots you'll ever see in Test cricket. Uh, and you know, and and I think that, that, that there would then become that discussion around, well, what is baseball? Uh, name this this phrase that the media use. And I think the answer to that would be, you know, looking back on it, the, the idea was always to free up the England players' minds. Um, they had come when McCullum took over from a background of winning one in their last 17 Test matches, and he wanted to take the pressure off and to free them up. But that doesn't mean, uh, I don't think he would, ever, he would be the first to say, that doesn't mean you just go out and play like an idiot. And I thought England batted so poorly in that first innings, and they were rightly criticised for it. Uh, Garth, I want to ask you this, because every time the television cameras switch to Brendan McCullum, clearly they're just sitting up there in the players' area, and he always looks fairly relaxed, and there's a conversation going, or he's watching it. Uh, we've, he always, every time you see him on TV, he seems sort of so jovial. Does the seri- is there a really intense, serious side to Brendan McCullum in those situations? Like, does he finish the end of a day's play and sit the boys down and go, that's not good enough? Is there that side to Brendan McCullum? And how does that, um, yeah, how does that um, morph for Brendan McCullum? Um, look, I, I don't know what he does at the end of the day, and when we don't get into discussions around that. What, what I know is he's tough to teach, and... Um, He's competitive, and, and he'll want to win, and he'll do whatever he can uh, within the spirit of the game to win. Um, so I, I, I don't think he would sit down. Um, you know, he, 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 One of the things is he regards all of these people as adults, obviously, and they are. He's not one to sit and lecture and yell, I'm sure, and bang the tables and say, you've got to do better and so on. But I don't doubt that there will be discussions going on around how, uh, how to temper this, this, this desire to play with freedom. Um, you know, he's always looking for a way to win, and the way England batted in the first innings meant that they were, they were unable to win this test. So uh, I, I don't doubt at all uh, that he is extremely serious, very motivated, and uh, desperately keen to try and get a result at uh, Henningley and then in the, the two remaining tests. But he's not afraid at the same time in his own way and whatever communication style he uses to pull a player aside and say, look, uh, and I'll be blunt, not good enough, um, you need to be better. I'm absolutely sure that he's, uh, he will be capable of doing that. And, um, but, but, you know, again, in a, in a way that is not uh, condescending. You know, I mean, there are lots of different styles of coaches. And, I mean, the thing is, I think, uh, judging by the look on the English players, they will all know that they bat didn't do well enough, and individuals, I'm sure, will have acknowledged that to the coach and to the coaching staff. Uh, so sometimes players don't need to be told; they can offer it themselves, Mark, and say, "Look, I'm sorry, I've got that wrong, and I'm, I'm reflecting on it." You know, so it, 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 sometimes it shows even more insight from a player, in my view, when they pick up that rather than having to be told. Does Wood come into the England cricket team? Uh, probably, um, uh, you know, it, it depends. He had a cortisone injection on uh, Monday, I think, of um, last week, and he's, you know, he hasn't played any county cricket, as I understand it, 
but he has been training with the team, and you know I think that if ever there is a time for him to come in, uh, now is it. I mean, the problem is going to be that he's, he he may not be match fit, and you know they're going to rely on him running and involving short, fast fills. But I, I think they have to bring him in, and I think you'll probably see Anderson or Broad uh, rested. But it's difficult. England have got, you know, Archer is injured. A lot of their players are injured. So they don't have the resources that they thought they might have, uh, you know, when the series was being contemplated. Okay. Just finally, Garth, before we do let you go, have you bought any more art? I haven't bought any art. Um, I'm I'm looking now. I'm off to the Tate Modern now. You can have a look at that on. um, I'm very aware of the the Tate Modern. Yes, I'm very aware of it. Well, an exhibition uh, of Hilma Klint and uh, Piet Mondrian, so a Swedish painter and a Dutch painter, and they've been put together. And interestingly, uh, Hilma Klint was born in 1872. Am I right in that? I think so. Eight, eight, sorry, 1862 and died in 1944. Uh, Mondrian was born in 1872 and died in 1944 as well. And yet, Klint's, when Klint, they're both abstract painters, and they've been brought together in this exhibition, which I can't wait to see. And when Clint dies, a very little of her work was shown publicly when she was alive. And when she died, she, she ordered in her will that her, the work should not be shown for 20 years. So it wasn't until uh, the 19, around 1970 that her family opened up this treasure trove of work. And it's now been uh, revealed to the world. It's quite incredible. Some of it's been in New Zealand recently as well. So that should be fun. Send me some photos. <laughs> I will. You'll get your first one through in about half an hour. No, I appreciate it. Thank you, Garth. Enjoy London. Very envious. All right. All the best. Back soon. Cheers. Th- thank you. 24 minutes away from 10. Garth Galloway there. Some interesting thoughts. You can have your say. 0800 150811. I've been winding the English up on a number of uh, Facebook pages and sites, putting little comments, and I just sit back and wait for everybody to go psycho and nuts. Not the English, the Aussies. Oh, I love baiting the Aussies. Oh, very good at giving it, terrible at taking it. I did the first hour where I just sledged the Aussies, um, even though we're an Australian-owned company. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, someone just saying, damn, just home, missed your show, Aussie hypocrites. You can be able to, you can listen to it, can't you, Ben? You'll be able to listen to this show from about 10 o'clock onwards. Aussie hypocrites, ha-ha, cried over the words in the long room. On the commentary, they asked, who are Kiwis supporting? Please text. I text and I'm supporting Poms because Aussies are crybabies. Laugh out loud. They didn't read out my text. Of course they didn't read out your text. They are crybabies. They are hypocrites. They are bad boys. They don't understand the spirit of the game. They never have. It's laughable the way they criticise the sledging towards Usman Khawaja, forgetting they wrote the book. They wrote the book. 23 minutes away from 10. It is 19 minutes away from 10. You're listening to SENZ. Nick, good evening. Welcome. Good evening, Mark. How are you going? Good, thank you. Hey, I just listened to your um, the interview with Garth. thought he raised a few um, very interesting points. I will put out the disclaimer first that I am, I do quite like the Aussies and I sort of enjoy the way they've always played. But anyway, I do also enjoyed your rampage on the call the other night. So, all that, all that, <laughs> but, but, Should have heard me between 7 and 8, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was at cricket training, funny enough. But um, but um, yeah. Going forward, I think um, what Garth said about Jimmy Anderson is really interesting. Where, you know, he's like obviously a you know all time, absolute all time great. You know, in anyone's books, and um, he's really obsolete in the series. He's really pointless, really, as a selection. And Mark Wood, you know, will play for him or Broad, I guess, if he's injured or any of the other bowlers. But um, I just think that's interesting from you know Stokes. 
folks point of view talking about the flat tracks and he's sort of just assumably full knowing that's going to render Jimmy Anderson obsolete, which is a sort of interesting tactic. But, but anyway, and, and also on, on the, on the English batting collapse in the, in the first innings of that match, I think that, uh, that aside, the first two matches, I think overall England should be confident in what, what they're doing can, can win the games because they've been quite close on both occasions and really they've lost it as opposed to Australia have won it. And, the, the way you see in the first or the first over, the first session of the first test, and Pat Cummins is, is putting sweepers out of his, off, off his own bowling, no less. It's it's just so... I think the whole tactics of baseball have completely rattled Australia and they're like out of their comfort zone. And I think they're actually, even though they've won, they're, they're, they are there for the beating. If, if, if England can put more than just one day or two sessions in a row together, you know? Well, I think if you run through the Australian cricket team, you look through their top order, it is a better top, top order than England. Like, it's a lot more secure. It's a lot more consistent if you look at recent results. And, you know, people forget before McCullum and the so-called Basball, they'd lost 17 tests and won one. Coming into the series, mm. they suddenly won 11 and lost two out of 13. They've got close. You could argue that it could have gone either way the first test. Um, yep, some rash batting, and they've still got to learn to... You know, there's a difference between, um, yeah, you know, there's a fine line still, between being still, brilliant still, and stupid, isn't there? But but you're right. Yeah, I mean, you can still be aggressive and smart. You don't yeah. have to be aggressive and reckless, you yeah. know what I mean? But I think, um, like you say, I was talking to my friend about that the other night. You're exactly right in saying that there's pretty much the same players. He hasn't brought in mm. too many new batsmen, apart from, apart mm. from Harry Brock. It's pretty much the same guys, you know? Look at Ben Ducker, he's not exactly a spring chicken, you know? No, well, I mean, as much as we hate to say it, Australia are still the best test side in the world. I mean, you go through every England player, they all say who's the player that they would rather, you know, I saw a thing where they said, which player, Australian player, would you like to have in your team? They all said Mitchell Stark. Uh, then you've got yeah. Pat Cummins. You underestimate Nathan Lyons is three test wickets away from, or two test tickets away from 500 test wickets in the shadow of the great Shane Warne, but still, you know, take Shane Warne, take Milleritharan out of it, and you're arguably looking at one of the greatest spinners that's ever played the game. You look at Manus Labajane, Usman Kawaja, well, I mean, he's been an absolute revelation in the top order. Uh, you still can't underestimate David Warner, Stephen Smith, arguably the greatest batsman maybe of our generation. So, you know, what do England expect? I tell you the other thing. The other thing I think about England that's probably not not uh, interestingly not smart by McCullum is that they they need to pick. They have to pick the, the keeper Ben Folks because Johnny Bairstow cannot keep and he's costing them. He's costing them big time. Anyway, yeah, and, I'll, be, I'll leave you to it. No, thanks, Nick. And I think it was Johnny Bairstow that cost um, cost them the first test. If you can put it down to one player.